Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast where four, that's right, you didn't miss here, four <laughs> editors this week take you around the art world. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Gallery's editor, Casey Lesser. Hi, Isaac. Hey, Casey. Senior editor, Tess Thackera. Hey, Isaac. Hi, Tess. And staff writer, Alexa Gotthart. Hi, Isaac. Hey, Alexa. So this week, we're going to use your piece, Alexa, um, published late last month. These artists are tackling big issues through tiny works of art as a jumping off point to ask the question, does size matter in art from how much it costs to how it compels a viewer to interact with the work subject matter? You know, often huge works of art dominate the conversation. But Alexa's article, you, you looked at a few um, sort of small scale works to see how artists are, are working on that scale to, to address, you know, challenging issues. So maybe you can just kick off by talking about what got you thinking about this. So I started seeing a trend amongst contemporary artists, um, saw this both on Instagram and in the galleries across New York, of artists making very small works, works that can fit into the palm of your hand, works that are even smaller than that. And um, I was really struck by it initially when I met this artist, Curtis Talwis Santiago, at um, an art fair earlier this year, and he literally pulled an artwork out of his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and that work was kind of unknown to the New York art scene at the time and has since kind of blown up, for, for lack of a better word. He has two solo shows up right now, one at Rachel Efner, another one in Philadelphia. So I just was really intrigued, like, why is this trend happening now? Has it always been um, interesting for artists to work on that scale? And it turns out, with a little bit of research, that, that artists have been using this skill. Yeah, so... What 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 kind of history of working in tiny sizes uh, is there in the arts? There's a big precedent. So um, as early as the 13th century, Persians were using very tiny, tiny brush strokes in their illuminated manuscripts to kind of bring this precious quality to primarily religious texts and subjects. So really kind of honor these subjects with this very intricate jewel-like almost brushwork. Um, then the, the Elizabethans, for instance, in the 1500s, wore tiny portraits of their lovers as a means to induce, like, quote-unquote, private pleasure hmm. um, around their necks. And then, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but they were also kind of like these intimate amulets, like soldiers would take them away with them to war and sailors would take them on a journey so they were kind of sweet as well so would you say that you know at this point size was was primary like primarily meant to induce an effect or was it just for a practical purpose or both um i think it was meant to induce this idea of devotion of of honor of ritual if and and in the case of the illuminated manuscripts, mm -hmm. there are also communication, mm -hmm. um, and there's kind of like the issue of literacy there, and mm -hmm. so yeah, I think, but definitely a focus on intimacy. Mm -hmm. And since then, I, I would say that the the perspective of artists has shifted, or the the reason that artists ha are using this small scale has shifted. They're sometimes engaging those kind of devotional, intimate themes, but. They're playing with that. They're manipulating that now in order to broach maybe more serious topics. What's the subject matter of these works? They range. In the case of Curtis Talwis Santiago, he is 
using very small dioramas to depict pretty weighty subjects. So in one work in particular called Deluge, he um, has placed a small boat that is filled with about 50 passengers that is kind of pitching violently in, in seas. And, you know, we're not sure what, which boat this is. We're not sure where it is, but it definitely brings up thoughts of mass migration and the refugee crisis, um, looking at it from our, the contemporary moment in which we're looking at it. Um, and he's really interested in that shift of, of you know, our, <clears throat> our instinct to think of something as small, um, think, of, think of something that small as cute, and then as you look at it longer, the kind of shock of, of something that you thought was cute is actually very weighty, intense, gut-wrenching sometimes. And the obvious comparison here, of course, is Jake and Dinos Chapman, who create these um, scenes with tiny human models, which, um, uh, when you look closely, are quite horrifying scenes of war and mutilation um, and people doing terrible things to one another. Yeah, I mean, that was one trend that kind of ran throughout your piece, or one theme, I guess is a better word. This not necessarily a clash but juxtaposition between you know the size of the physical work and the size of the issue that's being addressed and I know the the artist that you spoke to kind of talked about how maybe some people still don't necessarily take it seriously how, how did that sort of come up so we equate size these days and humans have kind of always equated small tiny size with cuteness mm-hmm. um, and that's definitely been exaggerated, exacerbated with internet culture, I would say, in the last few years, like tiny cats, um, tiny food being made in YouTube videos that get millions of hits. There's this Instagram account, Daily Mini, where they every day post images of really tiny, tiny things that people have made, and it's like a real hand holding like a tiny cookie or real hand like pointing to a tiny plant Um, (laughs) and then like there are some artists who have kind of taken that into their practice there's this guy who has a youtube video of him making a teeny tiny lasagna and he's actually cooking it Um, (laughs) so i think there is definitely this like internet culture variation that is really all about being cute and kind of the challenge of making something as small as possible One of the things that I was struck by reading your piece is to what degree these artists are concerned with how the viewer is interacting with the work, which is, you know, true for many artists, but not all, to be so concerned with that interaction. Yeah, definitely. I think um, Curtis, um, in particular, Curtis Tallis Santiago, really wants viewers to interact with his work in a meaningful way, not just fetishize these small objects, which again, kind of, as humans, were um, conditioned to do, almost. Um, he, he hopes that, that people will really um, consider them. And the fact that they can fit a, into a palm of a hand helps that along. Um, you can really spend time looking at it, keeping it close to your body. Um, engaging it with it deeply in that way yeah Um, and there's something about that scale that sort of draws you in you wrote about this um to look at it quite closely and i think this may be a bit of a leap but just in thinking about why these works would be having an impact now um i was sort of thinking about 
are on sort of media and you know big global systems that we're subject to there's something about that tiny scale and the containness of them that gives you a sense of control the, the bird's eye view you know mm-hmm. But along with, you know, the the effect that small works have on, on the viewer, obviously, you know, the, the converse, these giant monumental sculptures that, that went through kind of a, a craze in the 90s um, also impact the viewer. And, and, you know, people are still making monumental works today for both private collections and, and public spaces. How, how does that sort of impact differ? Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about how giant sort of immersive sensory works Um, act on you as a viewer because in a way you're sort of overpowered by them if you think of a work like Olaf Eliasson's Sun which essentially in the in the Tate's Turbine Hall which is probably one of the art world's biggest spaces um, and it essentially was a huge simulation of a sun um, or even a work like a Richard Serra sculpture those works are very much about their relationship to your body and the sensation that the work produces um, and in a sense, you're the subject of the work. And so you don't have that distance to intellectualize it in some way. Those works don't really ask much of you. You kind of are meant to kind of explore and being overwhelmed is part of the point. Um, and like I'm just thinking about recently going to the Broad in L.A. And, you know, one room there's a giant Jeff Koons balloon dog. And the next room there's a giant set of um table and chairs by Robert Terry and that kind of make you feel like you're an ant um it's it's easier to consume these works and I think they're just their ubiquity has kind of made them less and less interesting today I think they consume you as well it's like you don't have to do any intellectual work at all because you're just being asked to feel something yeah I mean it's interesting that we sort of talk about uh how internet culture is sort of giving rise to the the prevalence of small smaller works but i also think that you know on the flip side this is like an age obviously like an age-old dichotomy and it almost seems to me that things have gotten more immersive as, as the digital has increasingly taken over so the desire to sort of have an all-encompassing experience um i feel like like the rain room if you think about them some of the most quote-unquote instagrammable works of art they are these sort of all over 360 um spectacles so there's sort of this continued tension that isn't new. Totally. And I mean, I I just, that made me think of Kusama's Infinity Room, which always has people lining up to see it. And you kind of have to give these works of art credit because they're making people who wouldn't otherwise go see art, go see art. So there is something to be said for these works. But like Tess said, it's, it's much easier. It doesn't require anything of you intellectually. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a work that's about sensory experience that doesn't make them any less interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, though, because just just because these small and big works operate in sort of very different ways, it doesn't mean that the subjects they touch on are completely different. So, you know, you have Santiago's works about the migrant crisis, which are very small, obviously. And then you have something like Ai Weiwei's uh, Laundromat, which is this giant... Um, installation, immersive work of art of of clothes left behind in an a abandoned refugee camp, like perfectly laundered, and, and it sort of acts on you very physically, very tangibly. Um, and you can spend time examining the minutia of each article of clothing if you want to, or you can just sort of be hit by sort of the all-encompassing uh, emotional nature of the work. So it, it sometimes to me seems like the best way to tackle these things is through a range of approaches. There's no one medium best suited. 
Right, and it, it's not common for a young artist to have the resources that Ai Weiwei does. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's an interesting point because Curtis um, Santiago brought up the fact that part of the reason why he started working on a small scale was out of necessity. He had a small studio. He didn't have a lot of money to buy materials or travel. Um, so actually, he was just at a craft store one day, and somebody who he had developed a relationship with just said, hey, like, why don't you use this ring box to, to make a work? I'm curious to see what you're going to do with it. And lo and behold, this entire body of work, which he calls minimized histories, which are these dioramas housed in these tiny ring boxes, was born. Um, so yeah, so sometimes it's the small scale is born out of necessity. Sometimes it's a reaction to large the large scale works that are in fashion. Um, sometimes it's a conceptual choice. So um, me and our producer Abigail Kane were thinking about how we often, you know, in today's digital culture, we see a lot of these famous works of art online, and we never actually get a sense for what they look like in real life. So a little bit of a surprise, we have a game to play. Um, Abby graciously researched the dimensions of many famous works of art. So I'm going to give you two, and you're going to tell me which one you think is larger or which one you know is larger. And I'm going to keep score. And at the end, there's five different pairs. At the end, we'll see who's won. So the first one, Dali's The Persistence of Memory or Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring. Okay, we're just going to go around in a circle starting with Casey. Casey. Which one is larger? Which one is larger, yes. Vermeer. Okay. Yeah, I think I would also go with Vermeer. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate and go with the other option. Okay, it is Vermeer. This is a good... Never side with the devil. Okay, so (laughs) let me just... Dali's work is nine inches by a foot and one inch, while Vermeer's painting is one foot and six inches by one foot three inches. All right, so the next one, this these two are sculptures, so we're going to go with height, just tallness, mm-hmm. not not square footage or anything. Okay. So Michelangelo's David or Jeff Koons's Balloon Dog. Th- this is the orange balloon dog. Um, that set the record. That set the record. Okay. I think David. Tess. I think it depends if you include the David Plinth or not. Uh, no, we're not yeah. including the Plinth. Included. We're not including the Plinth. Okay, in that case, I'm going to go with Koons. It is David. David is 17 feet tall without the pedestal. Jeff Koons' balloon dog is 11.9 feet tall. Okay, so just to keep score, Casey was the only one who got that one right. Casey, you're in the lead. Okay, Carl Castle's voice on your home answering machine. Okay, third one. Jericho's Raft of the Medusa or Picasso's Guernica. And this is by really square square feet, you know, because they're different dimensions, really but square feet, one. the largest one. Casey. Guernica. Okay. Oh, they're both massive. Mm-hmm. Um, oof. Yeah, I think. No, I'm going to go with Jericho. Guernica. It is Jericho. Oh! That is 377 square feet versus Guernica. Whoa which is 293 square feet. Whoa. So Tess is the only one who got that one. Uh-oh. Alexa, I'm a little worried. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought you were, I thought you were supposed to be the expert in this. You're really... These are historical works. <laughs> I know about contemporary. She specializes in small. Okay, okay. Excuses. Okay, so fourth question. Is Hokusai's The Great Wave 
Mm, versus, okay. yeah, which I've never seen in real I've life. Never seen versus it. Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Which one is bigger? Oof. Casey. Well, one is horizontal. Oh, oh square, feet. square foot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with the wave. Okay. Tess. Same. The wave. Same. The wave. You should have played devil's advocate. <laughs> Alexa, I'm so concerned. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Wow. Which comes in at 4.38 square feet versus the Great Wave, which is only one I guess the Great Wave is a wood footprint. It is. And it's also hard because, um, you know, everyone has the Great Wave as like preloaded as their desktop background. So it always, it like switches, switches sides. <laughs> I was in for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> that was a life-size one. Okay. So no points there. Um, I'm afraid, Alexa, that means you're out of the running. <laughs> but it comes down to Tess versus Casey, both who have two points. But we're still going to ask you a question. Okay, so the last question, drum roll, is Munch's The Scream versus Van Gogh's Starry Night? Mm. And we're going to start with Alexa because I think, you know, maybe your <laughs> luck will change. <laughs> I don't think this is going in a good direction, but um, I'm going to go with the scream i'm gonna go with starry night starry night okay guys i am sorry but they are the same size i knew you were gonna say that i, knew I know it. don't blame me blame our producer abigail do you have another one we need a tiebreaker i know we need a tiebreaker okay here i've got one so by popular demand um we are gonna add on one more question just because ending in that tie is really annoying this isn't soccer okay we're gonna have a winner um so this extra edition is Jackson Pollock's Autumn Rhythm Number no. Thirty, or Barnett Newman's, and I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation here. Weir Heronicus Heroicus Heroicus Sublimus. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Apologies to my my people who speak Latin out there. So, which one is larger, Alexa? Newman. Test. Newman. Pollock. Guys, we have a winner and it is Casey Lesser, everyone. Um, Alexa with no points. <laughs> I really need to brush up on my art history. Pollock's is 150 square feet. Newman's is 140 square feet. Wow. Um, these are two massive works. So before we sign off for this week's episode, a quick update on where we'll all be drinking white wine in the art world this week. Alexa, uh, why don't you you why don't you start us off? Sure, I will be heading up to a talk at Phillips on Friday about the mysterious designer Carlo Molino, who I'm a little bit obsessed with. So very excited for that. What makes him mysterious? Well, he um, he kept several of his interests, obsessions, facets of his practice secret during the course of his life. Um, he was well known for furniture that he made, but um, less known for the erotic photographs that he took in an apartment that um, no one knew about, not even his best friend, artist Carol Ooh. Rama. Tess? I'm going to be checking out the Sandra Perry show at the kitchen. Um, I know her work only from the one piece that she had in Greater New York at MoMA PS1 last year, which was sort of a... Uh, slightly surrealist slightly futuristic meditation on a family and ritual um in the form of a two-channel video and it was really great and casey the winner of our game i'm gonna go see the annie Leibowitz women show which is in its final days it closes on the 11th 
and it is a new series of portraits of women and um, she's well known for a 1999 series of women so um, another interesting thing is that it's being held at a former women's prison the Bayview Correctional Facility on 20th Street in Chelsea which they're actually transforming into a new women's building and I will be going to see the Pacabia exhibition at the MoMA, which is a new opening. Um, Pacabia is a, a excellent French um, painter, poet, all the rest. And I'm really excited. I've heard great things about this exhibition. It's gotten really good reviews so far. All right. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to our guests for joining us. Um, please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. See you next time. Our producer this week was editorial associate Abigail Kane, and the theme music is by Brooke for free.